Section 38 of Pantrophion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pantrophion by Alexis Sawyer. Section 38. Modern Banquets. We have endeavored to describe in the preceding pages some of those antique entertainments which seem to be the summum bonum of the gigantic power of those shameless dominators of the Roman Empire, whose reigns might be counted as so many banquets, and for whom the entire world was transformed into one vast market. We are reduced to despair when we attempt to depict such sensualism, and we also despair of inspiring belief. When one goes back into those old pagan times, when one shuts out the world as it is to evoke the manners and customs of days gone by and breathe in their atmosphere, the mind experiences a sort of stupefaction. So much is it immersed in the senses, so thick is the moral darkness, so low has man fallen. And, as if it had been decreed that everything should concur to consummate the annihilation of the human species on the one hand, Almost the whole family of man was, for the first time since their dispersion, collected into one body under the Roman dominion, which spread its corruption throughout the several members, while on the other hand the hordes of barbarians who pressed round like ferocious beasts waiting till the arena opened, were about to overrun the earth in the absence of any civilizing element that could interpose to stay the destruction, by snatching the conquered from the hands of victory, and the conquerors themselves from their own ferocity. It belongs not to us to portray this fearful cataclysm, this sudden transition from the development of all the arts which perpetuate the enjoyments of life to the profound ignorance, the savage rudeness which the northern conquerors imposed on enslaved Europe. The fifth was the last century of Rome. It was then that barbarism became everywhere victorious. The Vandals were masters of Africa, the Lombards of Italy, the Visigoths of Spain, the Franks of Gaul. Literature followed the destiny of the empire and seemed to perish at the same time. It is, however, impossible for nations not to receive as an inheritance from people civilized before themselves a great part of their intellectual cultivation. Happily, modern Europe was swayed by this law. The barbarians reduced Rome by the force of arms. Rome triumphed in the long run over the barbarians by the genius of civilization and her arts. It is known that even after the introduction of vulgar idioms, the learned of the Middle Ages continued the use of Latin, and that in the fifteenth century that beautiful language, purified from barbarian corruptions, became once more classic, particularly in Italy. At that epoch an obscure inhabitant of Mentz, John Gutenberg, immortalized himself by the discovery of printing just as the love of antiquity was causing the old literary masterpieces to be sought out, and creating a demand for copies of the manuscripts. Then, as if they had risen from their tombs after a thousand years of forgetfulness, all the writers of antiquity reappeared to charm, instruct, and renovate the world. It was the era of regeneration, when you, O beloved masters, Pliny, Apicius, Petronius, Athenaeus, and you, ingenious and faithful chroniclers of the gastronomic follies of the people-king, were resuscitated in all your glory. Others instructed the universe in philosophy, eloquence, and history. You taught man how the ancients dined, and thanks to your lessons our fathers began to comprehend that since the table is the great scene of life, where bonds of friendship are formed and cemented, banqueting is indispensable to the prosperity of nations. 
No one will accuse us, we hope, of endeavouring to establish a paradox for which we could hardly find an excuse in our love of the culinary art, as long experience and public facts within the memory of all victoriously confirm our assertion. Let us interrogate the nineteenth century. Hardly had the lamentable wars which divided the nations of Europe ceased, hardly had the vibration of the last cannon-shot died away when the people of every clime too long disunited sealed by fraternal banquets their tardy but frank reconciliation the destructive genius of war is succeeded by those grand struggles of commerce and industry which aided by the arts and sciences of civilization dispense to all the blessing of reproductive wealth and then dinner is the sine qua non to that goal all our efforts tend the Englishman dines in Paris, the Frenchman dines in London, the time-honored national dishes become cosmopolite, like those who dwell on the banks of the Thames or the Seine. On both sides the people are proud to communicate the arcana of those delicate preparations, which have only to cross the frontier to obtain, under a favorable sky, a more ample illustration and a new right of citizenship. Appetite, the roasting jack, in a word, gastronomy, serves perhaps to unite men much more firmly than motives of interest and more than one thought useful to the human species has often originated in the midst of the creative excitement of a banquet where to say the least we meet with that hearty good will and friendly aid which might be wanting elsewhere shall we mention that prodigious enterprise with which a noble prince the enlightened protector of industry and the arts and so worthy of our love and respect has deigned to couple a name dear to public gratitude the royal plan was nothing less than this, to erect an immense, costly, and sumptuous palace in which each nation should deposit the material proofs of its intelligence. Neither Rome nor Greece ever conceived such a thought. Louis the Fourteenth, with all his magnificence and the magic pomp of his reign, imagined nothing equal to it. This great and complex idea struck many persons, no doubt, with surprise. But England, we must do her the justice which facts prove to be her due, is always ready to undertake impossibilities and generally performs them. However, it was necessary to bring together a certain number of influential scientific, patriotic, and wealthy men, and obtain their cooperation to realize the modern arch of crystal, into which the industry of the world would be summoned to send its most marvelous productions. Banquets were proposed and banquets took place in honor of a prince who was about to connect all parts of the globe in the bands of commercial fraternity. The Lord Mayor of the City of London, that celebrated factory of the world's trade, invited all the mayors of the three kingdoms to come and place themselves by the side of the august spouse of their sovereign at a feast worthy of such guests by its delicate profusion and splendid magnificence. There His Royal Highness Prince Albert received the enthusiastic assurance of the realization of a colossal project, a philanthropic thought, the union of nations by rousing the noble pride of their nationality. In their turn, the mayors of Great Britain and Ireland were desirous of offering to the Lord Mayor of the City of London a banquet, at which His Royal Highness would be present, and this feast, a grandiose and sympathetic demonstration on the part of the votaries of the memorable London exhibition, took place the 25th October, 1850, in the Gothic Guildhall of York, where remembrance of the past was blended with hopes for the future. It was resolved to entrust us with the direction of the gastronomic department, and, let us add, the artistic arrangement of that banquet, which, by reason of its unprecedented richness and truly magic aspect, no pen can describe, owing partly to the magnificence of the maces, swords, banners, etc., of each county being for the first time displayed under the same roof. 
The engraving which we present to our readers will perhaps convey an idea of a portion of the splendor of the entertainment. The guests at the royal table consisted of the following distinguished personages. The Lord Mayor of York being in the chair, there were seated on his right His Royal Highness Prince Albert, His Grace the Archbishop of York, Earl Fitzwilliam, Lord John Russell, Earl Minto, Lord Overstone, Lord Beaumont, and the Right Honorable Sir Charles Wood. On his lordship's left were the Lord Mayor of London, the Marquis of Clanricarde, the Earl of Carlisle, the Earl of Abercorn, Lord Feversham, the Earl Granville, the High Sheriff of Yorkshire, the Right Honorable Sir G. Grey, Baronet, and Sir J. V. Johnstone, Baronet. As this table formed a prominent feature in the entertainment, the following distinct bill of fare was provided. Bill of fare for the royal table. First course. Risolettes à la Pompadour. Trois potages. Potager à la Victoria. Potager à la Prince of Wales. Potager à Tortue Transparente. Trois poissons. Turbo à la Mazarine. Rosés à la Italienne Blanche. John Dory à la Marinière. Trois relevés. L'extravagance culinaire à la Alderman. Chapons à la Nelson. Quartier d'Agneau de Maison à la Sauvigne. Venison. Quatre flancs. Timbal de Riz à la Royale. Hambon à la York. Volaven à la Talleyrand. Kenetons Canaries Macedoine de Legumes. Six entrees. Sauté de faisans à fumée de gibier. Blancs de volet à la York Minster. Turbans de quenelles de l'apéroe aux truffes. Colettes de mouton à la réforme. Riz de veau à la Palestine. Filets de caneton à la Seville. Second course. Trois rotis. Peon à la ancienne Rome garnée de ortolans. Bécassé au fouillet de céleri, guillenose de Ardan, Dix entremens. Crème de la Grande-Bretagne à la Victoria. Galatine de oisins à la Volière. Gelé de fraises françaises à la Fontainebleau. Miroton de Omard. Tartelettes prélinées à cerises de Montmorency. Crème de la Grande-Bretagne à la Albert. Salade de grâce à la Soyer, Chartreuse de fruits aux pêches, Gâteau cremants à la Duke of York, Yokaïs à outrées gratinées à la Ostend, Légumes à la Français, Petit Poivres, Légumes à la Français, Grosses asperges à l'Américaine, Trois relevés, Ou de salingir à la Allemande en surprise, Hambon croquant à abricots, Peignet de fruits glacés à la Lady Mayoresse. Dessert floréal à la Watteau. Raisons de Fontainebleau. Fraises de bois francais. Pêches de Montreuil. Ananas. Raisins muscats. Melons. Bananas. Compote de Chamontel. General bill of fare for 248 guests. First course. Trenton du Potagés. Quatre potagers à la Victoria, quatre potagers à la Prince of Wales, huit potagers à la Tortue Transparente, six potagers à la Moderne, trente-deux poissons, 
Quit tubos a la mazarin, quit truites salmones a la marinière, quit filets de merlans a la crème, quit crème cod a hutres, trente du relevés, six chapons a la Nelson, six saddleback de mouton galliot, quatre à la de bouffe au Rayfort, six chanches de venison, Six quartiers de agneaux de maison à la Sevigné, quatre didonneaux in diadame, trente-deux flancs, huit hambones à la York, huit poulards à la Russe, huit timbales de riz à la Royale, huit pâtés chaudes à la Westphalienne, quatre heat entrées, huit sautés de façons à fumier de gibier à truffée, Huit de colettes de mouton à la vicomtesse, huit de blancs de volet à la Yorkminster, huit de riz de veau à la Palestine, huit de risolettes de volailles à la Pompadour, huit de salmi de gibier à la chasseur. Second course. Corrente rotis. Huit de perdreaux à fouillés de céleri, huit de façons bardées en cresson. Six de canetons au jus d'orangean. Six grasses à la escossaie. Six de levreaux au jus de grossier. Six de basses et bassinines au jus. Saint entremets. Dix chartreuses de pêches. Dix jolies de fraises françaises à la fontainebleau. Dix salades de grasses à la soyer. Dix galatines espiquées à la volière. Dix crèmes champérentes à Kirchenwasser. Dix crevettes à vin de champagne. Dix gâteaux crémants à la Duke of York. Dix petits macédoines de fruits cristallis. Dix mirotons de homard à olives. Dix tartelettes prélinées à cerises de Montmorency. Vingt relevés. Dix paniers de fruits glacés à la Lady Mayoress. Dix hambones en surprise à la nanas. Side table vegetables. Celery à la crème. Chaux-fleur à bourri. Haricots verts. Chaux de Bruxelles. Celery à la crème. Chaux-fleurs à bourri. Sea kale. Chaux de Bruxelles. Grand dessert floreal à la Watteau. L'extravagance culinaire à la Alderman or the 100 guinea dish. The opportunity of producing some gastronomic phenomenon for the royal table on such an occasion as the York banquet was irresistible. Accordingly, the following choice morsels were carefully selected from all the birds mentioned in the general bill of fare to form a dish of delicacies worthy of His Royal Highness and the noble guests around him. The extravagance of this dish, valued at one hundred guineas, is accounted for by supposing that if an epicure were to order a similar one for a small party, he would be obliged to provide the undermentioned articles, viz. Five turtle heads, part of fins and green fat, at the cost of thirty-four pounds. Twenty-four capons, two small noy, from oxide of the middle of the back only used, eyeing the most delicate part of every bird. Eight pounds, eight shillings. Ten turkeys, the same. Eight pounds, twelve shillings. Eighteen fatted pullets, the same, five pounds, seventeen shillings. Sixteen fowls, the same, two pounds, eight shillings. 
ten grouse, two pounds five shillings, twenty pheasants, noir only, three pounds, forty-five partridges the same, three pounds seven shillings, six plovers whole, nine shillings, one hundred snipes, noir only, five pounds, three dozen quails whole, three pounds, forty woodcocks, noir only, eight pounds, three dozen pigeons the same, fourteen shillings, six dozen larks stuffed, fifteen shillings, ortolans from Belgium, five pounds, the garniture consisting of coxcombs, truffles, mushrooms, crawfish, olives, American asparagus, crustades, paste crust, sweetbreads, quenelles de volaille, strips or slices of fowl, green mangoes and a new sauce, fourteen pounds, ten shillings, total, one hundred five pounds, five shillings. In order to present to the reader the striking contrast of extravagance in ancient and modern cookery, we here give an engraving of the celebrated Roman dish, wild boar a la Troyenne, described in page 185. It appears to have been one of those extraordinary efforts of genius which the artist could only produce under the sanction of a lavish patron. It was a veritable tour de force and no doubt deserved the commendation it received, not only because it was of colossal size and the good taste displayed, but also on account of the various culinary delicacies of which it was composed. We have no account of the cost of such a dish, but judging from the excessive prices given in ancient times for all recherche articles at the tables of the great, it must have been enormous. We will now resume our description of the York banquet. In front of the principal table, on a raised platform covered with purple cloth, was a collection of maces, swords, etc., estimated by competent judges to be worth twelve thousand pounds. The most conspicuous ornament was placed immediately behind the great circular table. It was designed by the author and is represented in the accompanying engraving. It consisted of a large emblematic vase, twenty feet in height, painted and modeled by Mr. Alfred Adams. Around the base are Europe, Asia, Africa, and America, presenting specimens of industry to Britannia. From the center of the base springs a palm tree surrounded by the arms of the cities of London and York, medallion portraits of Her Majesty and Prince Albert encircled by the shields of the principal cities and towns of the United Kingdom form the body of the vase. Two figures of Ireland and Scotland, the handles, the Prince of Wales's emblem, the neck, and the royal arms, the apex. Appended were graceful wreaths of flowers in which the symbols of the houses of York and Lancaster, red and white roses, predominated and when a brilliant flood of gaslight aided by powerful reflectors was thrown upon this splendid decoration, the effect was truly magnificent. Having illustrated this volume with a marine vase belonging to the house of Brunswick and a curiously worked crystal cup, as gems of ancient production we give here, as modern works of art, an engraving representing three superb drinking cups, one for His Royal Highness Prince Albert, and one each for the Lord Mayors of London and York, the first is in ruby glass, a portion of the stem and base internally checkered with silver, and on the sides bearing white sunken medallions of Her Majesty and the Prince Consort, and the Royal Arms of England. The other two cups were of the same size and shape, but instead of being ruby and silver the colors were emerald and silver, and on the sides were the private arms of each of the Lord Mayors, together with the usual heraldic emblazonments of the cities of London and York respectively. They were presented by the author of this work in the name of the Patent Silvered Glass Company. 
The banquet was of so interesting a nature that we could not omit giving some particulars of it in this work. At all events, the pomp and splendor of modern times, as far as banqueting is concerned, must prove that, from the Greeks and Romans down to the Middle Ages, we have not been exceeded except perhaps in waste and extravagance. The national entertainments given within the last fifty years to commemorate striking events are too fresh in our memory to pass them in silence. Many persons can still remember the coronation of the Emperor Napoleon in 1805. On that occasion a grand banquet was given to all the dignitaries of the empire and their ladies, nothing being omitted that was calculated to solemnize with sumptuosity such an event. In 1810 the city of Paris offered to Napoleon and Maria Louisa, Archduchess of Austria, a banquet as extraordinary as it was costly. A semicircular gallery of the Corinthian order was erected on the whole square of the Hotel de Ville, where above a thousand guests joined the festival. In 1815 a magnificent entertainment was given to the Allied sovereigns by the city of London, where richness of decoration, massive gold and silver plate, and profusion of culinary rarities struck the beholder with wonder. At the coronation banquet of George IV in 1820, the old customs and privileges were ransacked to give éclat to that solemnity, one of the grandest and perhaps the most sumptuous that ever could be imagined in ancient or modern times. In France in the year 1824, the coronation of Charles X was celebrated at Reims with royal magnificence, the banquet excited the admiration of all present. At that solemnity the Duke of Northumberland was appointed ambassador extraordinary from England, and few if any ever equaled the liberality of his grace, or the display he made of his wealth, to represent and honor his sovereign and country at the court of Charles X. The fates and banquets given by his grace, and at which the author was present, were of the most costly if not extravagant description for we are told that the expenses of that munificent nobleman were not less than two hundred thousand pounds. The grand banquets and receptions of King Louis-Philippe during eighteen years exhibited too much liberality and splendor to be forgotten, and at the marriage of his eldest son, the unfortunate Duke of Orléans, Versailles presented a scene of banqueting and rejoicing unparalleled since the time of Louis the Fourteenth. On Her Majesty's visit to the City of London a banquet was given in the Guild Hall, the grandeur of which was scarcely ever exceeded, showing the loyalty, devotedness, and noble hospitality of the wealthiest commercial citizens in the world. In 1838 at the coronation of Queen Victoria, Buckingham Palace witnessed a most elegant, chaste, and splendid banquet. The ambassadors extraordinary, sent from all the foreign courts, were not more conspicuous for the brilliancy of their costumes than the native nobility who graced the festive board of the youthful queen of Great Britain. On this occasion a very elaborate and graceful fountain of massive gold of about three feet in height and two feet in diameter was prominent on the royal table. It spouted four different sorts of delicious wine into as many shells, from which it dripped into four reservoirs and was served to the guests by means of a golden ladle. This fountain can be seen with the regalia in the Tower of London. On that joyful day the members of the Reform Club entrusted to our care at Gwendeer House a sumptuous entertainment for fifteen hundred persons on a scale of liberality deserving of the highest praise. The marriage of Her Majesty with His Royal Highness Prince Albert formed one of those memorable epochs to be preserved in the annals of banqueting. The opening of the Royal Exchange in 1846 was also one of those extraordinary days on record where the Queen of a great nation gave proof of her sympathy in the prosperity of her merchant princes by presiding over a splendid entertainment to commemorate the re-establishment of that commercial edifice. 
On the 3rd of July in the same year, His Highness Ibrahim Pasha, son of Mehmed Ali, Viceroy of Egypt, was entertained by the members of the Reform Club to a magnificent and most sumptuous banquet provided for two hundred guests. The author, having full scope to do honor to the invitation, provided the following liberal selection of gastronomic dishes, many of which were innovated for the occasion. Bill of Fare Seize Potages Quatre à la Victoria Quatre à la Comte de Paris Quatre à la Louis-Philippe Quatre à la Colbert, aux légumes, printiniers. Six potages. Quatre de turbots, sauce à la mazarine. Quatre de buissons de filets de merlans à la égyptienne. Quatre de salmons de severin à la crème. Quatre de truites salmonais. En matelote marinière. Six relevés. Quatre de champons à la Nelson. Quatre de saddleback of Southdown Mouton, Rote à la Soyer, Baron of Beef à la Anglaise, Quatre de Poulards en Diadème, Quatre de saddleback d'Agneau, Rote à la Sevigne, Entre Pagodatique de Riz à la Luxor, Cinquante quatre entrées, Zix de Poussons Printaniers à la Ambassadrice, Zeeks de Colettes de Mouton à la Reforme, Quatre de Riz de Vaux Pics en Macedoine de Legumes, Quatre de Petuites Volavin à l'Etense de Marcaro, Quatre de Timbales de Riz au Quies d'Agno, Quatre de Jambonneau Braises au Vin de Medier, Quatre de Volet Farci à la Russe aux Legumes Verts. Quatre de pâtés chauds de cahier à la banquière. Quatre de rezolettes à la pompadour. Quatre de grenadines de bouffe à la Beirut. Zix de colettes d'agneau à la vincomtesse. Et quatre de turbans épigrammes de l'Evreux au fumet. Six rotes. Quatre de turkey poult piquets et bardets. Quatre de canetons au jus. De bigarades, quatre de lavrou au jus de grosses, et quatre de gros champons au cresson, cinquante quatre entremos, zix de jellies macedoines de fruits au danzic, quatre tubans de meringues demi-glacées, quatre de charlotte prussienne, six de Crocantes d'amandes, aux cerises, quatre de galantines à la volière, quatre de mirotons de homard à l'indienne, quatre de salades de volet à la soyère, quatre de haricots verts à berry nozette, six de tartlets pralinées aux abricots, quatre de pain de pêche à noyau, quatre de petits pois à l'anglo français, et quatre de gelées cristallises à l'ananas. Relevés de rots. Cream de Egypte à la Ibrahim Pasha. Gâteau Britannique à la Amarelle. Quatre de chambons glacés en surprise. Quatre de colettes en surprise à la Reforme. Quatre de manavaux de champignons au curacao en surprise. Dos de meringues chinoises. Pagoda aux fraises. 
We hardly need mention the annual entertainment which takes place on the 9th of November when the city of London makes a king of a citizen. In the course of the year 1844, King Louis-Philippe paid a visit to Her Majesty Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle, and during the time a series of banquets were given in honor of the king's visit by Her Majesty. The gold plate, worth it is said a million sterling, was used on that occasion. We shall not attempt to describe the extraordinary beauty of that service. The value in itself must leave the impression that nothing like it is in existence. In the year 1848, the return of Lord Hardinge, Governor-General of India, from his glorious campaigns in the East was solemnized by a sumptuous banquet offered to his lordship by members of the Carleton Club. In the year 1850, the annual meeting of the Royal Agricultural Society was held in the fine old city of Exeter, where the society was welcomed with the most enthusiastic rejoicings, and we had the honor of being selected by the committee to provide a dinner for 1,050 members. As this rustic banquet was admitted to be one of no ordinary kind, we give here the general bill of fare, and a short narrative of the first attempt to roast a whole ox by gas. Grand Agricultural Pavilion Dinner Baron of Beef a la Magna Carta Grand Agricultural Trophy 33 dishes of ribs of beef 35 dishes of roast lamb 99 dishes of galatine of veal 29 dishes of ham 66 dishes of pressed beef two rounds of beef a la guerre, 264 dishes of chicken, 33 French raised pies a la soyere, 198 spring mayonnaise salad, 264 cherry, gooseberry, raspberry, and currant tarts, 33 Exeter puddings, 198 dishes of hot potatoes. Homer tells us that a royal culinary artist placed before Ajax and his voracious companions in arms a whole bullock roasted. Since those heroic ages, many no doubt have shared the same fate. And we know that in this country, on the occasion of a rich heir coming of age, a roasted ox is often given to the tenants as a substantial fare with a well-nursed butt of ale, twenty-one years old. Many can remember that in the winter of 1812 a bullock was roasted on the frozen Thames, which certainly was something to wonder at. Another monster effort was attempted at Hammersmith some years ago, but the animal, clumsily suspended from the summit of an apparatus formed of three beams, was burnt, emitted a rank smell, and did not roast. All those who have had to attend such an operation agree that it is rather an awkward affair, and not performed without great difficulties on account of the immense fire which requires constant attention to keep up and regulate the necessary heat, and, after all, it is seldom entirely successful. For the present festival, the author, who knew well the power and efficacy of gas, wished to honor the guest with a dish of his own, never yet attempted, and which he has entitled the Baron and Saddleback of Beef a la Magna Carta. He therefore proposed to roast a baron and saddleback of beef weighing 535 pounds in the open air. The magistrates very willingly put the castle yard at his disposal, and it was anticipated that a large pandemonium fire would have been seen. But, to the surprise of every one, a few bricks without mortar, and a few sheets of iron forming a temporary covering to a space six feet six inches in length, and three feet three inches in width, were the only appearance of an apparatus, with 216 very small jets of gas coming through the pipes half an inch in diameter. It was hardly credited that such a monster joint could be properly done by such means. However, incredulity soon vanished on seeing it frizzling and steaming away, and after eight hours roasting it was thoroughly dressed at a cost of less than five shillings for gas. 
After having allowed it to cool, it was removed and carried by eight men through the principal streets of the ancient and loyal city of Exeter, accompanied by a band of music playing the roast beef of old England, and followed by thousands of the incredulous of the previous day. On its arrival at the pavilion it was deposited under the grand triumphal arch designed and erected by the author. It was seventeen feet high and ten feet wide, and composed of all the produce of agriculture in the farm. The following list will give you some idea of its magnitude. It consisted of one swan, two turkeys, four geese, four ducks, eight fowls, eight pigeons, four rabbits, one fine barn-door cock, six ox-heads, four calves-heads, two rams-heads, two stags-heads, two whole lambs, all natural and in their plumage or skin, ornamented with vegetables, fruit, and flowers viz cabbages turnips potatoes carrots leeks celery rhubarb onion french beans peas asparagus sea kale stalks sheaves of wheat oats barley pineapples citrons cherries grapes melons peaches apricots greengages apples gooseberries strawberries currants and the choicest kinds of flowers all being the production of the county and surmounted by various implements of agriculture there was also an elegant jug ornamented with flowers filled with clotted cream. On the top of the huge piece of beef was placed a black pig's head weighing eighty pounds when killed. It was in the recollection of many persons that thirty-five years ago a baron of beef weighing only two hundred and forty-two pounds was roasted in Exeter under the superintendence of twelve blacksmiths at their forge fire for a banquet given at the time peace was proclaimed. The Parisians have not forgotten the great fate of the distribution of eagles by His Majesty the Emperor of the French, on that day when he relinquished the functions of President of the Republic for a more august title. That military solemnity was followed by a splendid banquet at which there were several thousands of guests. It would be superfluous to add that the arrangements for that gigantic repast evinced the intelligent taste and incredible resources of imagination of our continental neighbors. An entire volume would not suffice if we attempted to recount all the pompous feasts which followed in succession during the last century, the age of powder and suppers. But we cannot pass in silence the memorable punch given in 1746 by Sir Edward Russell, commander-in-chief of the British forces, which can only be assimilated in point of extravagance to the great banquet of the Earl of Warwick, the description of which was extracted from the gastronomic regenerator, and reproduced in this work page 362 the bowl was the marble basin of a delightful garden forming the central point of four vast avenues bordered with orange and lemon trees a magnificent collation was served on four immense tables which occupied the whole length of the several avenues the basin had been filled with four large barrels of brandy eight barrels of filtered water twenty-five thousand citrons eighty pints of lemon juice thirteen hundred weight of sugar, five pounds of nutmeg, three hundred biscuits, and a pipe of Malaga wine. An awning over the basin protected it from rain, which might have disturbed the chemical combination of the delicious beverage. And in a charming little rosewood boat, a cabin boy belonging to the fleet rowed about on the surface of the punch, ready to serve the joyous company, which numbered more than six thousand persons. We cannot terminate this rapid sketch without mentioning that after several years of research in compiling this work we completed our task on the day following that on which Her Most Gracious Majesty the Queen of England offered the largest royal banquet since her accession to the throne to an assembly of kings, queens, and princes, 
and the flower of the British aristocracy, consisting of a hundred and twenty guests, on the occasion of the baptism of His Royal Highness Prince Leopold George Duncan Albert. This regal entertainment took place on the 28th of June, and never perhaps did the august sovereign display so much magnificence and majesty. We shall not publish the details of this imposing banquet, and moreover we should inform our readers of nothing new were we to tell them of the artistical selection, execution, and perfection of the bill of fare, of the richness of the ornaments and service, of the royal and feminine gracefulness of the mother, wife, and queen. May heaven grant, say we, in the words of the immortal Bousset, that the children of this illustrious princess, like a crown of olive saplings, may cling round her and grow in virtue, strength, and renown. May the ruler of empires throw a halo round the destiny of the august mother, and show to all that his mighty hand upholds thrones and protects kings. End of section 38 End of Pantrophion by Alexis Sawyer Recording by Philip Gould